turn the recorder on. Right, let's see what happens. You already you braced yourself. I'm braced. I've got my glass of wine here. And good morning, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan. You're sounding more professional every week. <laughs> I have to practice my good evenings. Well, you know, to compensate, everything else I say sounds less and less professional. So it's probably <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and how are you today, my friend? I've been doing homework. It's the kind of thing which you have to do some of and I have to do some of. And I suppose anybody who writes has to do these things which are not actually writing, but they're assignments. They're like assignments from your elementary school teacher. And, and I've been working on homework. It's not to do with my teaching, not to do with the university. It has to do with a, a book I'm working on. And it's really annoying. You know. <laughs> well, I think all of us have some form of homework element to what we do, whether it's doing the sort of the, you know, the business side of things, the tax kind of stuff that comes with it, or those times when you have to barrel through buckets of copy edits quickly or quickly uh, renegotiate, um, you know, uh, contracts, which I was doing this week, all that kind of stuff adds up and is a little bit tedious. But that's that's how that goes, Gary. You know. I know it is, and I should. <laughs> I, I, I realize that. I mean, we've all had the experience of getting page proofs. You were telling me about this uh, yourself. Uh, the academic presses are, are probably worse. You 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 get the page proofs, uh, and they send them to you on Wednesday and need them Friday. That's not unusual. No. That's not unusual at all. I mean, this this uh, year, I did. I've just well, this last couple of weeks, we've just gone through the copy edits for the best science fiction fantasy of the year, which is a two hundred and forty thousand word anthology. Now, they were the actual copy edits were done very very well by the eminently professional uh, Marty Halpern, and then uh, I deal with Ross um, at Nightshade to coordinate all of my. Uh, all of my copy edits, Ross Lockhart, he's great, and I've got a great working relationship with him. But you know, there's this thing that sort of you know goes, well, if at all possible, could we get this in, th get these all done in three days? And you know, there are 31 authors in the book, so you've got to coordinate with 31 people in four different countries on a myriad of timelines. And all it takes, as happened this time, is for one person just to be out of town. You know, for the weekend, mm -hmm. and everything goes a little bit pear shaped, and you don't get to make the uh, turn. You know, so they look. That's the way that goes. I guess so. I'm not. I, I shouldn't be complaining because this will be done in by the end of next week. That's um, it. It's all done at some point. Yeah, it, 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 it all gets done, and then there's some other deadline. So, I, I, in other words, I'm having a wonderful time. I shouldn't be complaining. <laughs> the weather's not bad here. I have food on the table. You know. Yes. As, as, as Tim Pratt, who has to write 180,000 words of novel, tweeted uh, earlier today, we are, after all, living the dream, Gary. But that's true, I suppose. <laughs> you know, the dream's Although, always a little bit more complicated than you think. Right. Um, I suppose people who grew up wanting to be writers, and uh, I don't know how you felt about this, but when I discovered I had no talent for writing fiction, um, Charles had kind of the same thing, uh, Charles Brown, hmm. that, you know, we can write about it, which is pretty good. I mean, it's something you can write about anyway. I, I guess, though, I so, never really tried to write fiction, so... Um, I did, but I never tried to write science fiction. I always remember something that Daniel Keyes uh, told me about the way he used to teach science fiction when he taught it at Ohio University in mm -hmm. Athens, Ohio, that he would never let them write science fiction the first semester. They all wanted to take his course because they could study with the guy who wrote Flowers for Algernon, 
and who had been an editor and who you know, was involved with the Hydro Club and so forth. He was involved in the science fiction world. And he said, no, you can't do that. You have to show me you can write a good story and then um, you can write a science fiction story because science fiction is hard. Hmm. And I've, as, as, as you and I have probably talked about before and as I've noticed in more than one review, the fact that science fiction is hard sometimes becomes apparent when you look at very accomplished uh, literary writers trying it on for size. Yeah, well, yes, that's true. It does, does seem to you, know, you, you can see the seams there more, more clearly. It yeah, does occur, exactly. to, occur to me we have two big pieces of locus-related news this week, Gary. We do? We do, Gary. First of all, just a, a week ago, well, not even a week ago, but two days ago, the recommended reading list came out. You can see it on the Locus website. It's there for you yes. to read, argue with, love because you're on it, hate because you're off it, uh, malign us for compiling it, love us for compiling it, or whatever. And that always makes it an interesting thing. And I guess I just noted as a as a social slash historical thing because I always, when I was not in, of, involved with a magazine, used to be fascinated by it coming out and would pore over it and argue with it and love it and talk about it. So I'm just, you know, just it's out there and it's this great thing. And and for me at least. Uh, kicks off, and we're not going to go into too much uh, voting consideration for awards and all that kind of a thing. Well, I think it really does kick off the discussion about nominations for the Hugo Award, at least since it comes out exactly at the mm -hmm. same time of the year that those are open. And there have always been problems with it. I mean, people have always had individual problems with it, and one of them is a rule which it's a very rational rule that Charles Brown established years ago, and I think Wise is continuing, is that we have to, we have, somebody has to see the book. True. There and, has to be physical evidence of this book. Well, that's uh, true. It has to be. The, the other criteria which has become clearer and clearer always to me over time, and makes good sense as well, is that if you want to make the, if, if, you're, if your thing is going to make it the recommended reading list, we have to have, A, seen a copy, as you say, but also, B, at least one person in the commenting group must have read and loved it. Mm -hmm. um, and that tends to be, you know, a factor in terms of the shape of the list. I mean, yes, there's an array of people involved. I don't have the exact number, but probably across the long and short fiction lists, a dozen and a half people, maybe, certainly a dozen, are involved in mm -hmm. discussing, selecting, whatever else. Uh, and if it hasn't, you know, unfortunately, if work hasn't registered with that group, it will tend to fall outside, you know, the consideration of the award or, or of the of the list. But I guess I'd also say that I mean, the list is it, it's it's a talking point is what it's supposed to be. So um, I've always been a little bemused at people who see it as a major achievement to get onto the recommended reading list. I think it's more interesting to look at it as as a discussion point. Uh, and so I'm going to be quite curious to follow the discussions that arise around it in the coming weeks and months as we slowly move toward, you know, through the uh, awards seasons, as we will inevitably see. Mm -hmm. The other Locus-related news we have, Gary, relates to yes. Locus reviewer Gwenda Bond. Were, were oh! You, were you aware of this? No, I don't think I am. Ah, just this week... Gwenda Bond sold her first two novels to Angry Robot. Excellent. Uh, Angry Robot had just launched a young adult imprint, Strange Chemistry, and they had a big o open door program um, and got lots and lots of submissions in. And Gwenda's, they bought two books from Gwenda, 
one Blackwood, a, a young adult uh, historical book, Blackwood, which they describe as what a dark, witty, coming-of-age story that combines America's oldest mystery with a thoroughly contemporary romance, which sounds mm-hmm. good, uh, will be coming out this September, actually. Uh, so that's very fast. I mean, like it's January now, February now, and it's going to be out in, in September. So we'll be able to to- toast Gwenda in uh, at World Fantasy in Toronto. And the, the, you know, the, the second book will follow uh, sometime next year. So that's really exciting news. And I just wanted to send out, you know, sort of congratulations as publicly as possible to Gwenda for um, becoming a published author, which is you know, a, a, an awesome thing. A published fiction author, remember? Yes. She can write reviews. She's been, she's been writing for <laughs> yeah, that stuff doesn't really count, mate. Sorry. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's you a know, it doesn't really count. I mean, this is that distinction I always used to make with Charles uh, when I tried to, or when I just tried to describe it, and also with another friend of mine. It's that difference between being in the band and being with the band. If you're in the band, yeah. you're writing fiction. If you're with the, if you're doing anything else, you're with the band. So we're all with the band, unfortunately. <laughs> okay, now, now that, that's one of the things that I would have, I would have, I would have attacked Charles for saying that because that turns reviewers into roadies. That's how it goes, dude. Well, okay, fine. Yeah. And, and you know, if you want to argue it, man. if you want to argue, well, maybe not roadies. Roadies is a very, maybe record producers. Oh, that's worse. <laughs> not necessarily. It's not all sniffing blow off the, you know. The, the, the... Now are we recording? Now we're recording. Next. <laughs> Dickensian bloody technology. Anyway, we were talking about being with the band. Yes, being, as you say, quite <laughs> rightly. Maybe that's it. Maybe the analogy for the critic is, and, and, and you know, it's an honorable one, though still a with-the-band kind of position is your Charles Shar Murray kind of liner notes critic kind of a position where it's still not making the actual music. And, you know, if you're not making the actual music, it's with the band. And the thing that always brought that home to me is when you look at something like the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction. Mm-hmm. You, know, you go look at the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, there's a 455-page long entry on Michael Moorcock and, you know, a page long or, or, or half a paragraph on a, on a critic. And True. in many ways, that's completely understandable. You know, I mean, we all, you know, all of us who, who know Charles or knew Charles, you know, believe that and rightly that he made an enormous contribution to the field. But it's a behind the scenes contribution. It's a with the band contribution, you know. This is life. It's it's not. It's hardly we'd call an injustice or the end of all all, all good times. You know, it's like it just happens. It's 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 a way of being involved with the. It's there are lots of ways of being professionally involved with this field when you can't write fiction or don't write fiction or don't mm. know how to write fiction. Yeah. And I think that's great. I mean, we can we can write reviews. We can edit anthologies. We can edit magazines. We can read other people's manuscripts. Um, we can teach about it. We could write academic books about it. Uh, so they're, 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 it's, it's a generous field in that sense. It is. Um, and, and you know, sorry. As I say, in some ways, it's more generous than than any other genre because I don't know that uh, I don't know that mysteries and romances have all these kind of auxiliary activities going on. I know there's a huge online fandom for romance fiction. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't seem to have the kind of uh, so professional superstructure that science fiction has of all these people who are um, very good uh, people who are very good copy editors like uh, you mentioned Marty Halpern sure uh, that's that's a skill which I think people in this field recognize and value um, you know Deanna Hoke is somebody who is well known in the field although somebody who simply 
uh, knows the field by fiction writers might not even recognize the name. True. I mean, I guess what I'd say is one of the differences between being in the band and being with the band is that if you're in the band, you're known to the audience. If you're with the band, you're known to the industry. Yeah. And most of the people that we deal with... Yeah, most of the people that we that we would talk, be talking about are known and respected within the field, but aren't necessarily widely known out there, at the, you know, in the world. So yeah. Anyway, the main point of it is to congratulate our Gwenda for for it. I mean, she's not the first Locus uh, person to go from reviewer to writer, and you know, I, th- I think you would join me in wishing her every single success. Every success. She's uh, in a good field, and two novels is good news. I always like to hear about people uh, selling a first novel, especially um, if it's somebody who I've um, seen either short fiction from or, in Gwenda's case, criticism from, because mm-hmm. uh, that's that's a way of getting started in the field. And there's a question I was asking I, another friend of mine, and I don't know if I can say this or not, but the daughter of a, of a good friend of mine who's a well-known, established science fiction writer, the daughter sold her first novel mm-hmm. uh, to uh, to to this Amazon title forty seven something uh, yeah and uh, and I thought this is terrific because it's uh, it's somebody who may get discovered I don't know I don't know uh, whether um, an on whether the Amazon thing is going to generate new writers in the way that uh, let's say Nightshade has been doing but it raised the question in my mind is if you are a new writer and you're out there and you haven't how do you get to be, how do you get to be known how do you Let's say, how do you as an anthologist discover a new writer? How do I as a reviewer discover a new writer who tends to come in one of two ways? Either with an enormous amount of wildly irrelevant buzz uh, Mm -hmm. from somebody who wants to position their book as a mainstream book. Or frequently from a small press uh, that doesn't have a lot of publicity machinery and tries to uh, basically sell us on new writers on the quality of their editorial choices. Yeah. Which is exactly what Nightshade has been doing, for example. I, I have to say, I almost never react positively to the highly buzzed major publisher first novelist. For some reason, I, I, I just have a personal reaction to it that you know, kind of gets my hackles up, and I'm sort of like, yeah, really? Whereas, I mean, if I'm going to discover a first novelist or, or a new writer, really, uh, successfully, it tends to be from the pages of a small press magazine or... Almost an unobtrusive publication, if that makes sense. Back, I mean, back in the day, it would have been the writer who had their first novel come out as a mass market paperback from Ace or Daw or any one of the mass market paperback right. lines, and it would have been one of twelve books released that month, and it would pick up a bit of buzz amongst your friends. They would talk about it, and suddenly you'd be going, "Well, who is this William Gibson guy, and why should I read him?" That right. was the, that was the way you really found out about first novels now or, or new writers now for me uh, like I say it, it's it's more along the lines of you know scanning all the magazines and you'll see the first traces of you know a Ken Liu or an Arno or Mayala or somebody like that and start thinking well oh they've got something going for them E Lily Yu Genevieve Valentine mm-hmm. and then you know they go on to sell stuff um, when someone comes along and says yeah here is sort of Deborah Harkness and she has her big bestsellery Discovery Witches book. You tend to look and go, really? Is that all hype? Is it all hyperbole? Is there really something there? I don't really know. And you become very, well, I become very cautious about it, should we say. So. Are you being cautious about it because that writer that you might be speaking of that's getting the buzz from a mainstream publisher hasn't gone through an apprenticeship, basically hasn't paid their dues? 
No, I think it's because you, you begin to wonder, is, is it just because someone's throw, thrown a whole lot of money at it? You know, they're, they're trying to buy buzz. Oh, yeah, they absolutely are. And it, it's that difference between the feeling like there's some kind of earned buzz and uh, purchase buzz. And it may even just be that late 20th century or you know, latter half of the 20th century moving forward uh, skepticism, cynicism, rejection of advertising generally. You know, what's word of mouth isn't advertising. You know, what what's um, paid for by a company is advertising. One feels genuine, one feels forced. Uh, and so you're looking for that kind of earn. If you like, if, if it's earned, it's not earned by doing your time. It's earned by being, you know, having been read and enjoyed. You know, let me let me. Well, give yeah, you I th- yeah. Okay, give me an example because I was about to give you one. Okay, I don't know about your you example. Can... I don't know about your example, okay. Gary. Keep it in mind because we'll come back to it. My example is a book that I read this week, mm-hmm. and I don't read many novels at the moment, but I did read Saladin Ahmed's debut, The Throne of the Crescent Moon. Uh huh. Uh, Saladin absolutely did his time, as I guess we would traditionally expect in the field, by writing short fiction for various yes. online and print zines. He's been nominated for mer- major awards with one or two pieces of short fiction. Uh, and then, out of the blue, I guess, a little, sold a series of novels to Daw. Now, this is part of what's been making me feel a lot more interested in Daw. Daw obviously did... Nedia Korofor's Who Fears Nedia Death, Korofor, which, yeah. which seemed like, an, at least from an outsider's perspective, an entirely left-field selection for what had seemed to be a very traditional publisher indoor. Right. Uh, a very conservative publisher. Now, this new book, The Throne of the Crescent Moon, is excellent. I really, really enjoyed it and cannot recommend it highly enough to anybody who has any really? taste for sword and sorcery adventure fiction and stuff. Really, I really liked it. It's, it's just, just terrific. Um... It reminded me, on some level, of Michael Shea's Nifteline. That's a little mm-hmm. bit not quite as uh, grotesque or darkly intense as that. The, the characters are, ter- are, are terrific. I won't go through all the plot and all the elements of it and why you, you may or may not like this or that character. But if you have a taste for action-adventure fantasy, it's really well done. Uh, and I, could, I can even bear the fact that it's a trilogy because the first book resolves enough that uh, I felt satisfied having read it, even though I still wanted more. So, yeah, a strong recommendation and a, a, a pretty a good traditional example of how you get buzz. And, and in fact, which this is, this is me saying the book comes out in three or four days. And if you have any taste at all for this stuff, go read it. Do you think there's a bias? Because uh, you mentioned Solid and another name who comes to mind, a similar kind of thing, got a lot of buzz a few years ago was Ken Scholes. Yeah. Uh, with his, his series that began with... Um, Antiphon wasn't the first one. Um, oh yeah, I know the one you mean. Uh, isn't that terrible? Lamentation, which Lamentation, which, a series we enjoyed oh. is his, his fantasy slash science fiction series, the well, Psalms of science, it, It's a very, very intelligently done series that yes. you know, Gene. Uh, any, any anyone who's read Gene Wolfe or Jack Vance is going to figure it out pretty much by the end of the first volume. Huge amount of uh, enthusiasm from Tor and from Tom Doherty. Deserved enthusiasm, by the way, uh, but. The sense I have is that you know Ken had um, had published a bit in the field, had been around. Uh, he was a familiar uh, site of conventions, very nice guy. And I wonder if he had not been in the field, if he had come up with something like this, which could be sold as a as as, as a Tolkien-esque fantasy, um, from let's say I don't know Random House, would they have would they have treated him as some grand new discovery in the way they treated? 
the way they tend to treat I'm not going to pick out a random house. Let's, let's just say mainstream New York publishers. Um, in contrast to something like Justin Cronin's Passage a couple of years ago, um, which is I didn't finish it, but the parts I read were okay. But it's you know it's it, it's a zombie apocalypse novel done in a literary fashion by a writer who had a track record as a mainstream novelist. Huge amounts of buzz. Got put on the bestseller list. Um, and would he have had that same treatment had he been associated with the field prior to that book? Justin Cronin? Justin Cronin, yeah. Probably, oh, that's a very good question. Probably not. Though, I mean, though I, I'm not sure why I say that. I mean, uh, when I think about it, uh, in ter- you know, the, the Cronin mm-hmm. book... I mean, it's a bestsellery type book, and generally, for whatever reason, our you know our our writers don't cross over like that. Um, mm. Now, there's no doubt, in my mind at least, based on whatever else, that the Skulls series was an attempt by Tor to create a bestseller. Mm-hmm. Um, that was pretty clear in their funding, you know, the way they funded it, the way they approached all yeah. that kind of stuff, and there are reasons why it may or may not happened that don't really relate to the quality of the books. They're a very, you know, they're an enjoyable series and very interesting to read. Um, but, no, I, I don't know. I, I suspect you, you may be onto something. It may also be the place of the publisher within the field. I mean, uh, Daw, I mean, yes, it's interesting to see them doing something less traditional, less conservative, but they're still one of our publishers. Tor are very right. much one of our publishers. Um, the other mass, you know, the, a generic mass market house uh, that, that perhaps doesn't have a specialist SF line at all, doesn't have a dedicated science fiction or fantasy editor, tends to be a bit more, you know, distanced from us. And so if it came out from, I don't know whom, Thomas Dunn Books or something, I think you might mm. look at it a little bit sort of like, oh. In fact, a good example of that has to be an, a, a book that's not unrelated to the Saladin Ahmed book, uh, Howard Jones's The Desert of Souls, mm-hmm. which, came, which did come out from Thomas Dunn Books uh, yes. last year. And actually, very, it, I heard I heard wonderful things about it. Uh, but but it you know it it didn't quite look like one of ours. Yeah. Have you seen it? I've I don't have a copy of it. You, but have you ever seen a copy? No. Okay. Uh, it could be, and in many ways, okay. In many ways, the difference between the two books is that. The Armored novel is a fantasy that has historical elements in it, or overtones. Uh-huh. The uh, Jones book is a historical that has fantasy elements in it. So it's a slight, okay. flip, slight, slight switch of emphasis, a little bit. Yeah. Um, but the Jones, because I think to some degree of the way it was packaged and where it came from, seemed more outside the field, where the Armored is very much within the field. It has a classic genre-looking cover, um, yeah, and it has that kind of genre marketing. So yeah, you know. So the, uh, the, the, the there's something to the ghetto mentality still. I mean, there's a um, when, when you mention the the Jones novel, it reminds me of the Robert V S Reddick novels, which were marginally genre and not genre, uh, and and very good novels by the way. And I I don't know where their sales landed, but he's Reddick is not somebody who's Who's, who's a name bandied about a lot among fantasy writers, and he's not a name I don't think bandied a lot among um, naval, you know, adventure writers. But he's very good at both. Yeah. And uh, and the novels, you know, deserve the right. I'm, I'm thinking the last time I can recall somebody who was clearly associated with the genre getting a massive uh, 
burst of publicity for for, for her first novel uh, was a writer who I'm pretty sure her publishers didn't know how inv- how involved in the field she had been and how knowledgeable she was, and that was Susanna Clark for Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I mean, Susanna had been an yeah. editor in the field. She's married to a, a, a well-known critic and writer in the field. She's sure. she knows people, um, and and yet you would not get a hint of that from any of the publicity that surrounded um, her novel. Now, Strange and Norrell was actually one of those weird things where it was a fantasy novel, not published as a fantasy novel. Exactly. Um, and yet it was a pure fantasy novel. It was very knowledgeable about the history of fantasy. It's a very sophisticated novel for people within the genre. And I was actually a couple of times she was here in Chicago. And one time uh, when the book was being launched at the Book Expo and, and, and then a few months later on a book tour. And it was fascinating to listen to these. I know I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but these sort of NPR type <laughs> hush ladies talking about how, oh, there are there are magicians in this book, but you'll really like it because you can't put it down because it's a real novel. It's not just fantasy. And and an audience full of women swooning over this sort of thing, and Susanna being very, very diplomatic. I will give her credit for that. <laughs> Actually, let, let me ask but, you one of, the, uh, one of those impossible... In, in other words, yeah. can you... Sorry? Yep. Ooh. No, I'm done with that. I'm in enough trouble already. I was, um, was going to say, can you want... Here's my question for you, though, since you know Susanna. Why not? Let's, let, let's throw around a wild card. Have you been in touch with her in the last couple of years? No, I haven't. Okay. I know she was exhausted by the success of the first book. Just it's been um, seven years or something since that book came out. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if we're ever going to hear from her again. I don't know the answer to that. Uh I suspect that we will. I mean, you keep in mind that uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell was not written in, in, in six months. No, um, absolutely. And if you go back and look at the first fiction that I re- the f- first fiction we saw from her in the States, at least, were uh, stories that appeared in Patrick Nielsen Hayden's Starlight anthologies. Yes. Um, and going back several years before Jonathan Strange, you can see the characters. Uh, one of the early novellas, yes. I can't remember which one it was, I think it was a novella. I actually mentioned uh, Jonathan Strange in it. Uh, so, so you can see she's been working on that for quite a while. And mm. I think that um, she's taking her time. Well, yes. and I mean, uh, if, if you look at her biography, I think she started the book in 93 and it came out in 2004. But then by that standard, Gary, it's uh-huh. 2012, Gary. And, you know, that's eight years now. You know, might be worth dropping her an email and seeing what's up. Um, well, let's call her up and get her. I don't, <laughs> let's no. call her now. No, we, no, 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 no dear listeners, we don't. With it. Come on, get with the program here. It's, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, it's like we, we, we beat up George Martin last year for being a little bit late. So well, we're going to really no, get No, no, no. We never did. We didn't. Know. He was never our bitch. We were always out there being, you know, poor. You know, George just living his life and writing and all that. So, no, we were never that. But Susanna, she's just lollygagging. I mean, come on, eight years for a book. Who does she think she is? John Irving. I mean, come on. <laughs> anyway. I think one of the things, uh, okay, one of the differences is this, and I don't know what her next book is supposed to be. I don't think she wants to write more about Jonathan Strange and Mr. Noel, but I be, could be completely wrong. The, the, the frustration that was expressed by George, ex- expressed toward George by readers who I think were, um, let me say, unsophisticated, was because he was writing another book in a series, yes, which yes. they had become completely invested in, 
Yes. Um, and 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 they can't wait. You know, it's 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 like uh, you know people waiting at the docks in in New York and Boston for the next chapter of Dickens is the old curiosity sh- shop to show up in the periodicals. People could not wait. Um, in the case of uh, Susanna Clark, I don't think that people are expecting a sequel. I think that people are very curious to see how somebody who can write that wonderful a novel yeah. uh, can come up with another one. Uh, but I don't think it's the same kind of thing. I don't think it's like, okay, you left us cliffhanging on the last one. I think that's true. Because she didn't. And actually, in fairness, based on her, assuming that Jonathan Strange, and she has said that she's writing a book that's set in the same world as it, assuming that she actually is going to do that, um, oh, that's interesting. Uh, assuming that she's going to do that, um, we're about five years away. And the reason that I, I went, oh, that's interesting, is I was just flicking through the information about it, and at one point she did sell the movie rights to it to New Line Cinema. Uh-huh. And at one point it was being written, the screenplay was being written by the people who write Downton Abbey. Uh, Julian Fellows? Yeah. Really? Yeah. He could do that. That's he interesting. Could totally do that. That'd yeah. be fascinating. There you go. Strange little things. Do we have anything else particularly to talk about? Because I guess Gary, when we, when we started chatting, we briefly had flirted with bringing in a guest, and then we briefly acknowledged that we had nothing to talk about, even for us. And then I threw up some questions to people on Twitter. Uh huh. And I got a batch of questions from people on Twitter. Should we answer Twitter questions? Well, answer Twitter questions, and then I have one other question. Which I want to raise, but what I'll do is I can raise it as a teaser for next week or week after lecture. Ooh, Gary, that's like PR. Okay, for we're going to have almost all, we're going to have people. We're going to be people's bitches now. They're going to just be ooh, all over us because we haven't followed yeah, up on them. Yeah, of course them. they are. Okay, well okay. we'll start Twitter with the fact feed. that most of these questions all come from Fred Fred Keish, I think it is. And his first okay. question is: the, the recent renaissance of hard SF stories set in the solar system is it new space opera as well? And I guess he's talking hmm. about you know, books like *Leviathan Wakes* by um, uh, Daniel Abraham and Ty, Ty Frank, or uh, some of the recent Al Reynolds books. I mean, *Blue Remembered Earth* is it a space opera book? *Blue Remembered Birth*. Go, go back to the Paul Macaulay uh, *Quiet War* series, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and 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 so yeah, there, there, there's been a very decided. Uh, and I, I, I've often wondered if this is a compromise. Between the new space opera on the one hand, yep. the, the galactic, you know, the, the new version of, um, of, of of classic Doug Smith things, and mundane SF on the other. Yeah. Uh, because uh, space operas set within the solar system certainly more or less conform to what's considered possible under the mundane SF movement. It doesn't require faster than light travel. It doesn't require um, uh, hibernation. It doesn't require generation starships and so forth and so on. But on the other hand, uh, there's a lot you can do with um, with the outer planets and with the moons of the outer planets and so mm-hmm, forth and mm-hmm. so on. Yep. Uh, so my, so my, my answer to the question is, be yes, you can you can completely write a new space opera within the solar system, and people have been doing that for quite a while now. I so, mean, uh, so these stories. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one one thing I'm thinking back from what more than ten or 15, maybe more than ten years ago was uh, Tony Daniels' Metaplanetary series. Sure. Yeah. Which was I thought terrific. It was connecting. All the uh, planets of the solar system in this complicated spider web kind of communications and transportation system that made it look like a galaxy. Yeah. Made it seem to have infinite possibilities. Believe it or not, I'm editing a book of stories exactly like this right now. Excellent. A book solar system? Ed- yes, exactly. A book of uh, a book called Edge of Infinity, and the 
defining characteristic is that they are space-based stories set in a pre-starflight solar system that's been fully occupied or industrialized. Now, do you see those stories as possibly being space operas? Funnily enough, some of them yes, some of them no. I think it's it's it it's not the first test. You know, it's like there's there's more than one test to be applied to determine is it new space opera or is it not. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you still have to some operatic elements, if you like, uh, so, some grand conflict to to make it uh, bring in the space opera uh, element, or or you are edging much more towards hard SF. So it's how the adventure slash romance element, and I mean small r romance, not uh, mm. yeah, uh, plays out rather than anything else that will determine whether it is hard SF or, or if it's new space opera. And th this book will sit somewhere across that divide. So, yeah. But yeah, so, so the answer is yes. Opera, I think, okay, this is, space opera has to do with the scope of movement and the romantic yeah. sort of, I, I, rather than just actually the setting. You don't necessarily yes. have to be yeah. on some extrasolar planet. I tend to agree with that. Yeah. I do think you need to be, have, have a good chunk of space, though. You know, If you're on a planet a, lot, a planet a lot, it's not really so much space opera for me, but that's just me. Um, he's, his next question, Gibson's distrust that particular flavor and its echoes in his fiction. i got to tell you, I haven't read Gibson's distrust that particular flavor, Gary. Have you? I have. Oh, and what do you think? Um, uh I liked it. Um, I liked it because I because it did not come across. In the first place, uh, Gibson is clearly uncomfortable at writing nonfiction, and he makes this clear throughout. Mm -hmm. um, he's not. He does not take the attitude that many. I, I probably shouldn't mention names here, but frequently, when science fiction writers, established science fiction writers who have reputations as futurists, take to writing nonfiction. It comes across as I am so much more cool than you are that you will just never keep up with me, so you might as well die. <laughs> Gibson, sure. Gibson doesn't have that attitude. Gibson is absolutely fascinated by everything he finds in that, and I think it's it's clear where his fiction is coming from. Yeah. I mean, he wrote an, one of one of those telling essays in there is about Singapore, and Singapore is this hyper clean, hyper neat, Orwellian dystop dystopia. It's 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 a wonderful. Uh, dystopian story in the form of a non-fiction essay mm -hmm. in which he ends up being terrified and taking the next plane he can get out of uh, Singapore. Um, and I think that what you see is in that book is his eye for the kinds of things that go to make up his fiction. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's fairly consistent. Not, not many of the essays are terrifically uh, involved or complicated or, uh, or in some cases even insightful essays. They're the essays of a uh, tourist in many cases yep. of an observer who is just very very sharp in the connections that he makes and then you can see him making those same kinds of connections in his fiction so I think if you want to understand how, how Gibson sees the world and how much autobiographical material shows up in his fiction then that's a, that's a good collection of essays a couple of people have, have reviewed the essays as being thin and uncomfortable and like and, and there is a lot of design work to pad out the book. There's no doubt about that. But I think that's part of the book's charm. I think part of the book's charm is that he is not presenting himself as, I am William Gibson, who knows all about the future that you don't know about yet. It more or less presents himself as, I am William Gibson, who is just absolutely fascinated by everything I see. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to try to make some sense out of it. And if he can't make sense out of it in the world, he'll write a novel that makes some sense out of it. Excellent. Okay. Next question. With the number of anthologies, best ofs, paper zines, e zines, etc., can we really keep saying short stories are dying? 
that's your that's your baby because you read more of them by a factor of a hundred than I do. Well, the simp- there there are two answers which inter- interpolate. First of all, can we say short stories are dying? No, short stories have never been dying. Uh, people just like to lament their death because you know it's kind of a, you know fun, I guess. But uh, short fiction as an art form has been an integral part of the field throughout the life of the field and probably has never been as productive as you know, at any point in the history of the field as it is now. There's a phenomenal quantity of short stories being published. In amongst those, you know, even allowing for Sturgeon's Law being amplified, there's still more excellent short fiction being written than any one person can read. So, mm-hmm. on one hand, absolutely not. Uh, but generally when people say short stories are dying, they're talking about the business of short stories, not the art of short stories. And the art of short stories has been in variable health for as long as I've been involved with the field. And I'm sure for most of its post-pulp era life, you know, once the big pulp magazines went away uh, and we began to rely on books to make money out of short fiction or, make, or one or two print magazines or a you know, small handful of print magazines, uh, the actual business has been in variable health. I, I would say to you right now that in financial terms, it's in pretty dodgy health, frankly. Um, most collections are published by small presses and they don't sell in enormous numbers. Anthologies are much less reliable than they were just three, two, three, four years ago. So they're in a little downturn. And I don't think any, mm-hmm. of, the z- any of the zines, print or online, are making great bags of money. You know, I think Analog and Asimov's do well enough. Realms of Fantasy was up and down like, you know, sort of like a zombie on a yo-yo mm-hmm. for a while because, you know, people kept hoping it would make more money than it obviously ever did. Uh, though I don't know any of the details. That's just watching, you know, the fact that it was up and down, up and down. Uh, I don't believe, and again, I don't know any of the background, so I'm just, this is just my, my, my suspicion that Clark's World or Lightspeed or any of the others make a lot of money. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's like financially, eh, Artistically, financially, perfect. Uh, but yeah, I, yeah my, my guess is financially, it's, it's, it's always been that. I mean, I think when people talk about the short story dying, one of the things they may be looking at is a kind of phantom golden age when there were 20 print science fiction magazines and they were publishing hundreds of short stories a year. But the fact is, because I've been looking at magazines in the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. um, for the last year or so, and the fact is that the majority of those stories that would appear in places like Fantastic Universe and Super Science Fiction and, <laughs> were, were crap. They were they were yep. they were space fillers. They were boilerplate. Um, what's happened now is that really with all all these venues, all these online venues, you don't have twenty or thirty print science fiction magazines anymore. But I would guess that with the online venues and the original anthologies, there are as many markets oh, for sure. short stories sure. as there were in the fifties. Yep. The difference is. There is not a market really anymore for the boilerplate filler story, the famous monster issue of super science fiction. You can't write just crap anymore and get away with it. Of course you can. Uh, every, every venue out there seems to have serious editors who want decent fiction in it. Oh, Gary. So, oh, Gary. You, you don't think so? Oh, Gary. Come on. Oh, Gary. What can I say to that? All I can say is, Gary, you don't read deeply in the short fiction field, do you? I don't. I absolutely don't. Well, speak, I speaking on behalf, speaking, show, exactly. So speaking on behalf you of, of, of that, yeah. What I'm going to say to you is, speaking on behalf of that group of people, and I will assume to for this, I will presume to for the, for this moment. Speaking on behalf of the people who read it all, oh, it's there, Gary. 
The crap, really? Absolutely. The crap is there. You know, that, that little bit that you see surfs on a tsunami of shit. Well, okay. What you're telling me is that the work of, of you and Gardner and David and Catherine and Rich and Paula and so forth becomes more and more important because uh, what I tend to see is stuff that somebody tells me I should read. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for me, for a start, three of the most important editors doing years best in some ways are um, Ellen Datlow, Steve Jones, and Paula Garan. And they're really important mm-hmm. because, near as I can tell, the deepest, nastiest, schlocky piles of crap are in the horror area. Now, that's maybe just be that my taste. I, yeah, that I happen to know about because I know some... Well, and, let me and put so, this right I, I, I know some unsuccessful horror writers, and I... And despite the fact that they're unsuccessful, they're still selling yeah. stories. Well, yeah. So, I mean, th- those three editors are filtering through what appears to me the murkiest of waters, perhaps to be more <laughs> diplomatic. Um, but for the rest of us, um, I have to say, there is an awful lot of stuff. And most of it, a lot, there's a lot of stuff which is rejected by many of the kinds of places that you think of when you say what you're saying about the quality out there uh, that still finds a home. There are many, 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 many homes out there, particularly online, where there's very little I, cost. I defer, I, yeah, I defer to your judgment on that entirely. So, uh, but I, I, I guess I, I, I'll, I'll modify my position a little bit. My, my, my guess is that there is, there are as many markets for quality short fiction as there ever were. Sure, that's true. That's what you just told me, is that there's a lot of there's a lot of really dire fiction out there, just as there was back in the 50s and 60s yes. and 70s. Yes. Uh, but it doesn't make its way to the eyes of people like myself. No, no. I think that's fair enough. I think that's true. Um, now, it's possible that some of the base grammar... Well, I don't even know if that's true. I was going to say some of the base writing in the, in the rotten stuff is maybe a little better. But, you know, not much. So, anyway. So, the answer to, to Fred's question in that, this regard... No, short, the art of short, short stories is an art form. are not dying. They're not ill. They're not unwell. They're doing brilliantly. But as a business, meh. The next question yeah. is a controversial one. And you know me, Gary. Oh. I don't like controversial questions. Oh, not at all. So I could skip over it, but I won't. No, you what won't. Fred, who describes himself as a long-time subscriber of analog science fiction, uh, having been a subscriber since 1974, so presumably would see himself as being part of the intended audience. He asks, should Stanley Schmidt step down and retire so new blood can flow into analog science fiction? Now, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to say no. And you're probably going to wonder why. I'm not going to wonder why, because I would have said no too, but let me hear your reasoning first. my, My reasoning is this. First of all, I mean, Stan has been, is, I think is, if, if he's not already, he was about to become the longest-serving editor of science fiction in the field. And what Analog does do, whether it's always to my taste or not, is it's the last bastion of a particular school of thought in science fiction, a very traditional, engineering-based, tech-focused kind of fiction. Nobody else does it as well. Stan obviously has an incredibly clear picture in his mind of what that work work is like and it speaks to a particular audience I think if you took that away um, you would remove a particular nexus of, of thought in our field and I think taking Stan away would risk doing that because what sometimes happens when is when you remove somebody who's actually in control is you end up with either a copyist which is always not 
you know, less right. effective, or someone who's trying to innovate but doesn't necessarily pick up on the riffs of the modern era. Now, if you think about the juncture period between Campbell and and Schmidt, uh, Schmidt obviously had a very good understanding of what Campbell was about, and Campbell was was the pure innovator. I mean, when he came along uh, back in the 30s, Schmidt was the banner carrier. He was much better than a copyist. He really uh, has been able to understand and evolve what what, what they're doing at, at analog. Uh, I don't know that I've that I've seen anybody around who um, has an appropriate vision to carry that forward. Nor am I sure that I've seen all of the elements out in the field that I think would make up a new analog. Though now that I think I about think it, I think of, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I mean, I, 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 I well, I probably would have said pretty much exactly the same thing you said. I, I think Analog is a successful magazine. I think Stan Schmidt may be the last of the editors who knows his readership and knows what the readership wants in the way that Campbell did or the way that possibly Horace Gold did. Uh, when I talked to Gordon uh, Van Gelder, or, or, Gordon, you know, depends very much on his own taste. Uh, Sheila is not trying to replicate what Gardner did. Most editors are editors of a magazines in more or less the same way that you'd be an editor of an anthology. They mm -hmm. have a sense of balance. They have a sense of the mix of stories. They, they, they don't want to buy a story if they ran one that just looks like mm -hmm. it. Sure. But essentially, they don't have that coherent sense of audience because I don't think any other magazine has a coherent audience yeah. the way Analog does. Sure. And I think with, within that world, which, as, as you've mentioned, is, is not a world that I'm terribly involved in, Stan is brilliant. He knows yeah. exactly what that magazine is supposed to be. Yeah. And I can't imagine who would pick it up. I mean, there have been moments in my life, I confess, in the last 10 years when I've thought, gee, what would I do if I were suddenly in charge of analog? You know? And not that that's ever likely to happen in my lifetime. Um, and I do wonder, because every now and again I've seen stuff where I think, gosh, shouldn't Hanu Ryan Yemi be writing for Analog? Doesn't he seem like a, a 21st century Analog writer? Mm -hmm. How can it be that I don't think Charles Struss has ever appeared in Analog? When surely he's a 21st century Analog kind of guy. Um, you know, so there is that. It, it, it's, I, I would have liked to have seen something, you know, I would might have envisaged something where an Analog might move forward down that kind of a path. But that said, it could, you know, then it wouldn't be analog anymore. It would be something else. You know, analog is what it is. And so, no. I have to. I, I just have to. You know, yeah. Just, just parenthetically, uh, Jonathan, I've never in my life wondered what it would be like to be editor of analog. I mean, <laughs> this, this, this preoccupies you at some point. Not preoccupies, but there's been a moment or two when it's floated across my mind. Sure, you know. Um, well, there was the a one problem I have which is not a problem for Stan Schmidt and not a problem for the readers of Analog, is Analog can never again do what John W. Campbell did no. in 1937 no. and 1938. No. It's, it's not going to discover new science fiction. Exactly. And it, 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 it's, 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 it's basically an, a kind of archival traditionalist forum which can publish brilliant stories within that forum, and people write novels within yeah. that forum. And I can't uh, help but wonder that when Stan does retire in the next handful of years, because he is getting older, so at some point in the next handful of years he'll retire. I don't know when. And I'm certainly not looking to rush it ahead. But when he does retire, I do wonder whether they'll just quietly amalgamate it with Asimov's and have done with it. I wonder about that, too. I've heard it. Well, there have been rumors about that for yes, a couple of years. Yes, there have. Yeah, yeah. You know, so who knows? Anyway, uh, the other two questions I've got less to say on. There's a question. Is a classical education still a good route for authors to take? I don't know. I guess so. What do you think? 
depends on what you want to write. I it mean, does, doesn't it? <laughs> but you said you want to write Percy Jackson books. If you want to write Percy Jackson books, you want to write uh, books about you know, romantic vampires and werewolves in the Northwest? Probably not. You can probably get by <laughs> without much of that. Uh, and what else did he say? Oh, yes. MFAs, writing programs and the like, good or bad for the craft and practice of writing. Don't get me started. <laughs> I, oh, I, I just say, uh, in, just to in a couple of weeks, don't. Yeah, continue. There, there, there's an organization in the United States called the Association of Writing Programs, the AWP. They're having a con convention here in Chicago, uh, probably in a couple of weeks. I should find out. Uh, it's nothing but a, it's it's an enormous convention, six, seven, eight thousand people who are involved with MFA programs and creative writing programs. Um, almost no visibility of science fiction, fantasy, horror, or mysteries, or adventure fiction, or romances, or anything. It's completely non-genre fiction. Um, so is it going to do you any good to get an MFA? Uh, I have two answers to that. One is if you want to make a living as a writer, no. If you want to make a living as somebody who has an MFA teaching other people how to get MFAs, fine. <laughs> I should say for Ian Mond over at The Writer and the Critic to reiterate, an MFA is a Master of Fine Arts, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it says Master of Fine Arts and Creative Writing. And just jolly good for all of them. You, you, you go, you. Well, I should, in parentheses, and I think I brought this up before, there are MFA programs in the country that are useful. Probably the most useful thing for somebody who wants to be a science fiction or fantasy writer is to go to a Clarion workshop. Yeah. Um, Clarion has a terrific uh, track record. But um, I know James Patrick Kelly is at the Stone Coast uh, College in Maine. Uh, John Kessel is at the University of North Carolina. Um, I, they're, they're, in other words, there are various programs around the country that uh, probably would be useful to somebody wanting to write in the genre. But by yeah. and large, an MFA is not a way to train a professional writer. <laughs> yes, how do you train a professional writer? Write and then be published. Anyway, you, you write exactly. You write, get published, get paid for it. Anyway, so that, that, that last part, that last part is Harlan's advice: get paid for it. That's when you know you're a professional writer. Well, yes, I saw a question where John Scalzi was asking, how do you know when you're a professional writer? It's when you get, you're get you getting paid regularly for your writing. Not the first time, but regularly kind of thing. Like, yeah, Not the first enough. time. He's, he's got a very good point there. Well, or, or, or perhaps to be clearer and fairer to him, more than once. And I think that's probably fair enough. And there are other questions, but maybe we'll skip skip along because time is getting beginning to get away from us a little bit, Gary. Oh, dear. And you said you have a question, and I'm sure sort of some of Fred's other questions could be touched on another day. Uh, but okay, I would the question, question, yeah, well, the, these are questions I wanted to raise possibly for future discussion to see if, if some of our listeners have opinions. I, I have a, um, I got a notice, and I can't remember the title of the book or the editor. It's awful of me. But there's a book coming up from Paul Grave Macmillan uh, with a collection of essays, many of them by distinguished science fiction writers, on the subgenres of science fiction. And I thought it's interesting there's a whole book about subgenres now. Um, <laughs> And I think most of us know what that means because when we think about sword and sorcery or we think about space opera or new space opera or possibly cyberpunk or possibly steampunk. But then I got another book in the mail from mm -hmm. Liverpool University Press, uh, which is called, edited by Sarah Wasson and Emily Alder, called Gothic Science Fiction 1980 to 2010. And I thought, okay, here's a subgenre, Gothic Science Fiction, post-1980 Gothic Science Fiction, I've not opened this book yet. I don't know what that is. <laughs> well, it'll be Revelation Space and some other stuff. It could very well be. Let's see. I don't know. Uh, 
Does it have an index? It's sure to have an index. Well, there's an... Uh... Yes, it does. Okay, let me, let me flip back to the index. And um... tell me if Revelation Space is in it, then I'll feel smug. Okay. Um, I'm looking. Wait a minute. It's a big <laughs> okay. This is fascinating radio. Radio. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is the point where if we were a professional radio outfit, we would have some thinking music. Alas, we do not have thinking there music. Is, no. Just thinking. No reference. Uh, well, then it's probably not really gothic science fiction, is it? Gary? No, no. Uh-huh. whatever gothic science fiction is, is what this book is talking about. Let's see. There's some reference to the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen in it. Oh, oh okay. Uh, but, but isn't that steampunk? Or something? Well, uh, I don't know. Maybe I steampunk. What do I know? I didn't read. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's... No, that's not much about it. Um, stuff about Stephen Donaldson's Gap novels. Um, really? I don't really know where this is going. Uh, I've not looked at the book. I'm, I'm being terribly unfair to the book. The most unfair thing you can do to a book is go through its index and try to find titles that you recognize. And I'm not... Guillermo del Toro is in it. Okay. In the you see that? Uh, that yeah. makes some sense. Yeah. Um, my point is this. My question is, um, what do you have to do to be a subgenre? In other words... Cyberpunk came along and it became a subgenre, and then the cyberpunk movement was over. And it seems like the subgenre of cyberpunk is what grew up after the movement had declared itself dead in Bruce Sterling's Cheap Truth when he basically said cyberpunk is over. Um, steampunk named by K.W. Jeter is it over? Is it a movement? Is it a subgenre? Is it a theme? <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't know what the word subgenre means. Nor do I. Maybe it's a mode. Maybe it's a lifestyle. I don't know, Gary. You know what I think? I will now give you an official answer, trademarked and recorded by my friend Charles. It goes okay. like this. Beats the hell out of me. Well, that's our new slogan. <laughs> yeah, I think that's our new slogan. I think, I think that's replacing, I think we're rambling. <laughs> Beats the hell out of me. And that's what I feel about subgenres. Maybe, maybe you can look at the book, and next next time we meet, we'll we'll, we'll touch on it. Uh, next time we meet, I'll, I'll I'll try to find the book on subgenres in uh, science fiction from Paul Gray because it had essays. I think it had essays by some interesting writers in it. Yes. And uh, maybe maybe there's something out there. But I mean, if you wanted to go out, if you wanted to set out, if a writer, not you or I, because we're mere roadies and and we're not in the band but if a writer wanted to set out and create a subgenre right now tomorrow let's say we're going to create a subgenre of you can do that i don't know you're going to rot in hell you are totally Um, rotting in hell for that (laughs) (laughs) there'll be 25 new subgenres by the afternoon oh i I bet we will i mean but i I, I, but a subgenre has to have somebody besides you writing in it Zombies, huh? Zombies are gothic science fiction, are they? If ah. Kenneth Graham were writing today, if The Wind in the Willows came out today, <laughs> there would be there would be a riverside punk mammal, some kind of subgenre, and people people are people are writing 
wind in the walls novels anyway. So, <laughs> well, anyway, next week we'll come back and talk about something else because we actually have a guest tentatively lined up. You'll find out about that next week, listeners. <laughs> there is one other thing I want to quickly, quickly, quickly touch on, and then we will wind up. And that is, I received an email from our good friend Garth Nix this week to, on a mailing list that I'm uh-huh. on, pointing out that World Fantasy Convention 2013, the one in Brighton, is already half sold out on its memberships. My goodness. Yes. I immediately, and I haven't even joined myself. I immediately fell into a flat panic and bought my own membership. Uh, and then, of course, fell into a secondary flat panic when my, the rest of my family hated me because I hadn't immediately bought Sophie's membership as well. So I have to see about that. <laughs> but yes, uh, be aware. Well, I think, I memberships. Think if, if Sophie is coming, if Sophie is a member, I think I'm afraid, Jonathan, you as a father are going to have to learn what it's like to stage a debutante debut. Oh, shut up. Sophie, she'll be 12. She'll be. I don't care. I don't care. They were 12 in 1640. <laughs> uh, she's going to be well-known from this podcast, and people are going to want to see her debut at a World Fantasy Convention. <laughs> Maybe what I'll in do fact, is... she may take over this podcast at any moment. Well, she's welcome to it. No, no, I mean... Um... <laughs> Actually, th- th- yeah, this points out to me, Gary, that I've also been, well, negligent, Gary. Negligent. Mm-hmm. Well, I haven't purchased my membership to the 2012 World Fantasy yet. That's terribly irresponsible of you. Hey, you're the Toastmaster, aren't you? But I don't... See, that's the thing. I haven't purchased my membership yet, and I don't know if I have to. I was going to say, does does this mean that you can't get me a freebie membership? I mean, I thought, with you being Toastmaster, you could probably got me in. Let me get in touch. Let me me get in touch with with, with the organizers and find out (laughs) what I can do. I'll I'll, I'll see what I can do for you, pal. (laughs) I'm just checking to see if your name's down as a member. Oh, you are. You're down as a member. Okay, then I'm comped. I'm, I'm, I'm home free. Sorry. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm screwed. Okay, on that cheery note, Gary, it was All good right. talking to you as always. And, and probably we'll talk to you next week. Well, time. well, you know, given the willingness to help me get at the convention, yeah, maybe if you're good, yeah, yeah. Talk to you next week then. All right, talk to you then. Bye. Bye.